I can't believe how many families are suffering from this disease. I now know that addiction is a family disease. I thought no one in my family was an addict. I still feel scared to death every day. I don't know how to be a parent anymore. These past few years have been absolutely the toughest time of my entire life. My wife and I don't agree, and this is another big problem. I don't want this to be a secret anymore. That makes it even worse. If I have shame and guilt, how can my daughter ever get better? Being with other parents is being with people who really get it, and that helps me a lot. I've met some incredible people. I can help other people, and I feel better every time I just talk about all this stuff with my group. My life is turned upside down. Even when my son isn't doing so well, we seem to be okay. Talking with other parents helps me stay sane and not to feel so lost and alone. There are good people, good places to get help for my daughter and for our entire family. I have hope. I have to. I am not giving up my daughter. I want to help others. I've met some of the most special human beings. I'm very grateful. Talking with the other parents is helping me to stay sane. Hi, everyone. My name is Steve, and my younger son, our younger son, is 31 years old. There have been some treacherous days, some treacherous years, some scary times. But not today, and not the past several days of his recovery. And a remarkable event took place on Valentine's Day when uh, our son got married to a terrific gal. And it's wonderful to see someone build a life. And we got a grandchild in it, too. Uh, So uh, it's wonderful to be able to share such such good news uh, with all of you. Hi, I'm V. Uh, it's great to see everybody tonight be together. Our our son is, um, I guess, on the precipice of of, of being in, in a more long-term recovery. And we are, uh, as well, still feeling in recovery. Uh, bracing for tonight, a snowstorm. And uh, happy to be here with all of you. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve. And... Um... Yeah, uh, um, there's no snowstorm down here. It's 80 degrees, so that's cool. Uh, I want to congratulate Steve and V on the uh, the wedding of your son. That's awesome. Uh, what a what an amazing story from where you guys were to where you are now. Um, I'm thrilled to be here tonight. So um, I'm the father of five kids, the youngest of whom had a near lethal addiction to alcohol. Um, I'm so um, thrilled and blessed to be able to say that he's uh, now over seven years in recovery at 25 years old. He got sober at 18 and uh, he's thriving and it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. And so um, I'm thrilled to be here tonight and looking forward to our discussion. Hi, I'm Kate. I ditto that. Congratulations. How exciting. Um, I'm the uh, mother of a, uh, almost to be 40-year-old son who's 20 years into his recovery uh, from an alcohol, uh, dangerous alcohol uh, abuse problem. And um, Jeff and I are also the uh, primary supports for our 36-year-old niece who's five years into her recovery from uh, heroin and Xanax and unfortunately has found alcohol and that's a struggle and continues to be a struggle for the last three years. Um, So, but I'm always happy to be here and need to be here. Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm husband of Kate and, you know, father and uncle of the same, uh, the same people. Uh, You know, things are going pretty smoothly right now. You know, the one niece we're a little bit worried about, maybe a lot worried about, but, uh, you know, largely because of, uh, a lot of these types of meetings we're a little bit better equipped to handle the, uh, the, the bumps and, uh, ruts in the road and, uh, you know, are proceeding along pretty well. Hi. Um, it's great to see you again and congratulations to Stephen V. That's great news. Um, 
I am Bonnie, and I raised my son and my daughter as a single parent. And then about 10 years ago, when I was getting ready to retire, my daughter was given a dual diagnosis of bipolar, late onset bipolar disorder, as well as substance use disorder. She's uh, been in recovery for almost six years now, staying sane and sober. Um, and much as I'd hoped that uh, this pattern and chain of addiction and mental illness in my family would would have been broken, um, unfortunately, my grandson, who's 19, lives out in San Francisco, attempted suicide during the worst of the pandemic lockdowns. Um, and I'm happy to say he's he's also back on track, uh, and he's a freshman at college today. So. Uh, just grateful for the support and the shared wisdom of the caring community throughout all this. Good evening. My name is Jay. I have two children in recovery. They're both five over five years. Um, a son who had a very aggressive journey until five years ago, and a daughter uh, a little less so. Both live in great lives. I, too, congratulate you guys, uh, Steve and V. One of the greatest things about these meetings are you get to know people exceedingly well. Sometimes I think I know their children, even when I don't. But in this case, I actually do know their child. And I sent them a text and I got a beautiful message back. So another reason to be coming to these meetings. Hi, I'm Jill. Um, I'm going to echo what everyone else has said. Steve and V, congratulations. Really wonderful news. Um, I am the parent of twin boys who are 27. One of them is uh, just over four years sober. Uh, he's an alcoholic. He had about a five-year um, alcohol and drug addiction while he was primarily in college. Um, and he is doing incredibly well. We just came off of um, a visit with him over the President's Day weekend. He lives about five states away. So it was just really great to see him and spend time with him and just see how happy he has created a life for himself. Um, our other son is, um, don't really know how he's doing. He moved out of my house uh, about a month ago and uh, he is probably drinking more than he should be. Um, while he was living in our house, we talked to him about his drinking, but now that he's not in my house, I don't see the bad behavior. So um, it makes me a lot more peaceful. So I'm really glad to be here tonight. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam. Uh, Jill and I share the same two boys. First, I'd like to, again, extend my congratulations to Stephen V. It's wonderful news. And one of the things that's so great about it when I hear it, when I started coming to these rooms, I had no hope. I couldn't think about a tomorrow. And coming to these rooms and sharing my story and hearing other people's stories especially like this tonight, just increases my uh, belief that there can be some hope and some future. I'm looking forward to tonight's meeting. As Jill said, we share two boys uh, and their journeys are different. And the way we've learned to handle addiction and the tools and the strategies that we've learned through education is different for each child. And it's not a one size fits all across the board. So these rooms are very helpful in reminding me of that and, and learning different ways to use the same tools. So I'm looking forward to tonight's discussion very much. Hi, everyone. Good evening. I am Bethany Franklin. I am the lead family therapist for core programs here at Karen. And I am also one of the therapists who started the LGBTQIA plus track. Um, part of my duties is to facilitate the family education program and make connections with family members like all of you. So it's, it's really great to be here. I am personally a family member in recovery myself. So thank you all for having me. Well, it's great to see you, Beth, uh, Bethany. Thank you for joining us. Um, tonight's topic is family addiction and recovery, and we could go a lot of different ways, and I'm sure we will. Um, but I'm going to really focus on my recovery, and it might sound like a weird thing, but uh, there's no doubt that I had to go through a recovery process. 
a few years ago, my son and I were just hanging out at a friend's apartment. And my friend kept asking my son about his addiction and his recovery. He was interested. My son was four years sober at the time. And at one point in a conversation, my son blurted out, well, everyone in the family knows that my dad is the biggest addict in the family. And I was in total disbelief. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And my son continued. And he goes, dad, look, you're addicted to everything that you do. Your kids, your job, tennis, whatever you do, you're obsessed. But addiction is not just about obsession. The activity also has to be harmful to you. And those things, I said to him, they were not harmful, except when it came to my addicted son. I was addict- I was totally obsessed with getting him better. I, as a, as a symptom of that, I couldn't think. I couldn't do my job. My relationships with my family were really troubled. My head was constantly spinning. Um, I couldn't even eat. I lost a lot of weight and not in a good way. Um, and so my obsession to his addiction actually did become harmful to me. But I listened to experienced people and accepted that I needed to work on me as a parent. And I wasn't doing anyone any good by being the way I was. So after a lot of education and parent support group meetings, just like this one, I became a totally different parent to my son. And the best example was when my son began college. He was seven months sober at the time. And one Saturday night, we got a call at 4.15 a.m., one of those great calls, right? 4.15 a.m., he was blackout drunk and actually missing somewhere in the Bronx. My wife and I got out of bed and drove to the Bronx and we were nervous, but we were actually we were kind of in control. He was found three hours later off campus. We threw him in the car and we brought him home. And then he went right back. He was still drunk and he went right back to being a total asshole to us. But we just let it go. We let it just roll off our back. There was no yelling, no craziness on our part. We just didn't engage. And when he sobered up the next day, We sat him down and we said, you're done living on campus. You're commuting now until you earn it back. Then I thought about it and I said, you know, after all of this treatment, you actually know way too much now. You know exactly how this turns out if you keep drinking. So it's up to you. Recovery is your choice. We have done what we can do. And we left it right there. And to get to that place, that totally new mindset where we weren't frenetic and just jumping all over the place, that mindset took a lot of work. And I worked hard on my own recovery as a parent, and that is probably the best example. Steve, um, I remember like yesterday when that occurred. I actually remember like yesterday when you told a group that I was in that your son was going to college and living on campus. And I kept it to myself because it was only my business, but I thought you were nuts. <laughs> he was nuts. Well, it turns out you were right. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think so. He's doing incredibly well. But what I want to say is what I learned in these groups and maybe others do, but what I learned is how to deal with situations, how other people have handled things, see how things work for some people. Maybe that would be good for me. And in your case, my recollection was uh, me thinking he was crazy. You probably had that. You were crazy. You probably had that in your mind also. And you had a plan, I think, and um, executed it perfectly. And to me, it was just another lesson for me that um, things happen the way they happen. and, And these meetings teach, have taught me over more than a dozen years now of attending these regularly. Uh, what can occur? And um, uh, someone said in the introductions, they talked about hope. I think Sam did. Uh, that's what these meetings always give me. They had for 12 years when my son was living homeless for four and a half years. I would come and I'd hear other stories. They weren't always like his, but there were similarities. And, and I was able to leave. So um, that, really, that really touched when I, when I heard you say that just now. Uh, great story. Steve, I, when I heard you telling that story, the word surrender came to me. 
And, you know, that's something I'm really working on right now, surrendering that I can't control this disease, surrendering that I can't cure it, that I can't say the exact right thing that's going to make my child, you know, do get sober. It's not in my power. You know, I'm completely powerless. But as I struggle over the last three years, my addictive brain wants to say, I can, I can, if only. And I'm really working very hard right now to get out of that loop, to get out of that dance, to not go back. And, you know, when my niece holds out that uh, fat, juicy worm, to not go for the bait. And I will tell you, it takes every ounce of my strength to not go for the bait and to surrender to understand that I can't do anything here. I so hear what you're saying, Kate. I, uh, I, I had a very hard time with that as well. And um, it helped me to think about it more in terms of acceptance um, than surrender. And I don't know what the difference is exactly, but somehow that clicked in my brain that if I could accept that the situation we were in, he was in, was something that I really um, didn't have control over, that I could somehow uh, deal with it better. Um, I also was uh, totally bombarded and, and, and shocked at some of the first meetings I went to, to hear people say that there was, that, that there was a lot of um, relapse I thought, what? This is we're we're good now. He's he's two <laughs> weeks um, in a facility or whatever it was at the time. I, we're we're all set. You know, we're doing the right things. He's in the right place. He's following the rules, and that was a big part of my recovery was accepting that as well. That this is uh, something that um, you can't predict what direction it will take how long it will take. You know, we've talked about so many times this idea of when will they get it? You know, um, it took me a while to get it, I must say. So um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, beginning, it was hard to trust it also, just hard to trust that recovery could happen after I accepted the fact that it was so elusive. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot. When, when you stop asking them, and you stop wondering when they're going to get it is when you get it. Very well said. Amen. I love that one, Jay. I'm going to keep that one. I just made it up. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think Kate and V, you kind of hit the nail on the head, this notion of powerlessness. And we talk about the individual as being powerless over their disease and family members feel that same sense of powerlessness over their loved one and over their loved one's disease. And sometimes we become so entrenched in trying to control their behaviors and control outcomes of situations. And eventually we have to start to practice that acceptance like you touched on me and start to kind of remember and remind ourselves about those three C's that you didn't cause it, you can't control it and you can't cure it. And then we can start to break free from some of those patterns. So Bethany, when you speak about powerlessness, I'm reminded and and sort of when Stephen was talking, when my son was in the throes of, of his addiction, I didn't see it. I didn't know it. I, I, I knew something was wrong. I certainly hadn't had the education. But I was a fixer. That's what I wanted to do. I, I was afraid to let my see to see my son fail. I was afraid to let him be uncomfortable. And in everything that I did, once I started in my own recovery journey, I realized that that I had been sending him the wrong message the the message was he's not capable and that i believe contributed to his his downward spiral so so often we speak about this is a family disease it's interesting that we chose a topic of family addiction um and my recovery while it was separate process from my sons was <clears throat> although we never talked 
to each other about what each one was doing, we were able to see it in a very sort of, you know, parallel way, that parallel process. And as time went on and each one realized what the other was doing, it sort of helped, I think, motivate each of us to continue what we're doing and also helped to improve our relationship, which, quite frankly, I thought was beyond repair. So I had no idea what was going on. I was, as my my wife might say, I was clueless about what was going on. And little by little, I came to understand that my child had a disease, had a sickness. And that was upsetting, distressing beyond belief, worrisome, and a relief. It sort of explained a little more to me about what was going on. But the very idea that I needed something was way out there. (laughs) Who has to go when you're not the one who has the disease? So I could slowly but surely accept the condition of my son. But the idea that I needed something, that I needed to do something, (laughs) that I had to listen to all these people, that I didn't know better, that I wasn't just going along with what the doctor's orders, that was a whole different experience. Being told how powerless I was was not exactly inspiring me to join the program. So I took my time. And slowly, but I'd like to think surely, maybe, you know, maybe like the snail's pace, okay, to sort of get it myself. And sometimes, like when I won't ever turn my cell phone off because there may be that call where I can actually be super dad and save the day, okay? So I still have lingering thoughts that, Maybe I can really, maybe not control everything, but maybe I could change the outcome of something at some point. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to come to a different conclusion on that, but uh, I'm working on it. Progress, not perfection. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, Steve, that that whole idea of. Uh, of wow, it's me who needs help as well as as my child was was really um, really incredible to me. I know I was totally blindsided when my when my daughter was diagnosed and uh, and you know I thought I'd done everything right as a single parent. I'd gotten both my kids through really top notch colleges. They were into great careers. Um, I just uh, had no idea that there was any, any, uh, any risk. Um, I thought we'd gotten, we'd gotten over the the worst of things. And, uh, you know, what I do know now is that I, because I've done detective work is that there are generations and generations in my mother's family with combinations of mental illness and addiction and just a huge multi-generational cover-up of, of all of this. Um, and, and that, um, you know, I also know that genetics play a huge role in the in the risks for for people becoming addicted, and I I really didn't have a clue that this was in in my family at all. So I, I think I need to also join that clueless club because uh, you know listening to to people talking about um, their cluelessness made me remember. Um, my son's first alcohol poisoning. He was a freshman in college and we rushed up to where he was. And while he was lying in a hospital with a, uh, on, an, on an, an intubator, because he was intubated because he aspirated, I was more concerned about getting him back to school. And I was more concerned about making sure he rushed that fraternity. And we sent him back into the belly of the beast with um, a promise that he was going to learn to drink responsibly. I was absolutely clueless. Um, But jump ahead, you know, five, four and a half years later, when he did go into treatment, and 
our son was incredibly angry, uh, went to treatment very unwillingly, and didn't talk to us for months and months and months and months. And I have to say, after I got past the initial disappointment of not having him in my life, I was so relieved to not have him in my life because I did come to that realization that his addiction had affected me, had affected my family. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't have him in my life anymore. Um, And it gave me time to actually work on myself. I didn't know that I needed to do that. But boy, was I glad that he wasn't around me anymore. Jill, you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that you needed that time to work on yourself and that you appreciated that moment of not having him in your life. And I think it kind of goes back to what Steve was talking about. You know, we go into family education programs and we attend meetings and groups and not really aware of the work that family members need to put in for themselves. And I think it goes back to this sense of control, wanting to control different aspects, thinking we still have a grasp of control over some things. And family members, when we tell them that they have to do their own work, they're, they're shocked. They think, I'm not the addict. I'm not the one who's causing the problems or the chaos at home. But when family members really dive into their own work, I think they're better able to see the value in that and why that's so important. So, Sam, I identify with being a fixer. Um, you know, my son would do stuff that was um, completely unacceptable and I would try and smooth it over and, you know, make everything all right. You know, and then I go to these meetings and, you know, we're talking about surrender, powerlessness, acceptance and all of these things. And, um, you know, it was just it was a really, really hard time because it was completely opposite, you know, of the way, um, you know, I was wired as a human. And, um, but, you know, what I, what I quickly learned was that, um, surrender and powerlessness and acceptance, um, doesn't mean that you can't do anything or you can't learn anything. And what I learned was to stop doing really dumb things. Um, so Jill, when you talked about, you know, the way you were thinking about your son, you know, getting him back to school and making sure he's not, you know, missing, you know, work and all that kind of stuff. I was, when my son was in in rehab, he was in um, outpatient um, intensive outpatient treatment, and he had overdosed three times already. I was having conversations with him about moderate drinking. So, you know, what I learned was to stop doing dumb things, to stop fixing everything for my son, and in some ways, um, I would like to modify this surrender, powerlessness, and acceptance, and add the word you know, you can be influential, right? You could be negatively influential, right? And I was definitely doing that early on. I was definitely a bad influence, not knowing that I was, but I've come to see that I was a bad influence. And then, you know, when we tightened things up in the household and we created rules of engagement and boundaries and consequences and all those things, you know, it was, I think we were a more positive influence on my son's um, existence and, you know, willingness to move himself into recovery. We couldn't make him do it, but we could influence it. Yeah, actually, I like the way you put that, Steve, and the idea of influencing. Because one of the things that I think is confusing to me sometimes is the idea of, well, gee, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, so it doesn't matter what I do. But I can influence, and I can be a good influence or a bad influence. Uh, and things like when my son was off in college and drinking and he'd, I'd get a phone call. I'm at the airport. What was the flight I'm supposed to be on? And I'd think this isn't right. You know, I made the air, you know, I made the reservation for you. I sent you the information. You didn't have to do anything. All you have to do is get on. And I'm sure it was that he was drunk and had either not bothered to take the information, didn't have it, but he had the cell phone and I was stupid enough to pick up the phone and answer it. You know, so I was, uh, protecting him from the consequences of, of, you know, this ridiculous drinking that he was doing, Uh, uh, you know, and not answering him, not taking care of him wouldn't stop him from drinking, but it would help, you know, 
insulate him from his uh, his bad choices. Uh, you know, so so that it, being a good influence or a bad influence and coming to these parent groups and listening to what people do. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I, this is what I'm doing. And somebody else will do, say this is well, yeah, that's the problem with it. You know, here's what's going to happen if you do that. And I think gee, it never even occurred to me. People will talk about, yeah, my kid's living on the street, but if I give him, you know, a, a voucher for a uh, delicatessen, that way I know he's eating. And you find out, well, yeah, but if A, he's going to sell the vouchers for drugs, but even if he eats, that makes it easier for him to stay on the street. You know, don't give him food. Try to get him into a rehab center. So in good influence, you can't make him enter the, influ- the uh, rehab center, but you can try to put him into it. You know, Jill and, and Sam said, their kid didn't want to go into uh, whatever program that was. They can't really, you know, he was old enough. They couldn't make him there. I assume they didn't uh, tie a rope to him and drag him there. They did something to influence him for what was going to help him. Even though they couldn't control him, they influenced him in a good way. Bethany, when you spoke about educating parents, educating families that that they need to, I was going to say take control, but recognize that they needed to change. As I began this journey, it was easy. I was actually happy to be able to label my son's addiction as a disease. It gave me something to point to and something to hold. And I was able to relinquish control ultimately to the professionals to let professionals work with him. But it took some time, and people talked about acceptance and surrender. It took some time for me to sort of relinquish control of myself, just to get that help. And there are so many taglines and phrases that are thrown about, but one that really stuck with me, and I really took to heart then and even today, is that nothing changes if nothing changes. And I recognized that I needed to change and as I changed, it's sort of what Stephen was talking about before. It was a way that indirectly influenced my son and our relationship. I needed to change the way I listened to him. I needed to change the way I spoke to him and interacted with him. I didn't have to talk about addiction with him. I didn't have to ask him about his recovery. But it was over time that those changes became evident we we often talk about our son as as the 2.0 version i i think sometimes he looks at me as that 2.0 version as well um and and that's a good thing i I don't want to go back to where we were uh during the throes of addiction i don't want to go back to where we were even before addiction came into our lives i think our family well i don't wish it upon anybody is better today than it was before this process and and nothing changes if nothing changes. And I am going to continue to do that work on myself because that's how important I feel it is. We love 2.0 versions. I have to say, (laughs) you know, I I, I said at the onset of of the meeting that um, we have twins and our second son has a poor relationship with alcohol. Um, I actually have gone so far as to call him an alcoholic um, but because of the addiction and recovery work that I've done, that we've done as a family, I'm not in that dark space. I'm not in that crazed pit of my stomach, crawling down the rabbit hole, can't get out of bed space. I continue to go about my life. I continue to do the work I need to do to stay in my lane, to stay sane, to stay healthy. and. My son knows that he can get help if he wants. We've, we've told him that. But I look back to how I was four, four and a half years ago when our first son went into to treatment. I was a mess. I was a wreck. And I don't want to go back to there. And I am so grateful for rooms like this, for people like you that can make me wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I hope my son can make his make his way to work today. I hope he's not too drunk to get out of bed. I hope he can, you know, keep his apartment clean and go food shopping. But I'm not 
crazed about these things. The thoughts pass in my head and they move on. Um, It's because of the testament of the work that we've done as a family that I can say those things. What a crazy, unfair condition to be in. I mean, you get a disease and the person who gets the disease goes through and the family supports in ways that are not nearly as linked. This is like quicksand. This is quicksand that that I came to realize I had to save myself and the rest of our family we had to work on where we'd be swallowed up into this whole dark world. And that stinks. That really, really stinks. You know, Steve, you use the word disease. You know, for a really long time, I thought that addiction was a moral failing, that it was really an issue of uh, um, self-control. And if my son had enough self-control, if my niece has enough self-control, and then I started coming to these meetings and I learned, you know, uh, Sam, you used the word change. Change is hard work Mm. and it requires a lot of hard work. And one of uh, the things we've been going through in our house is we've had two months of angry silence from our niece. And what a blessing. As my husband would say, what an opportunity we have had, you know, and it's this opportunity, this silence has given me the opportunity to pause. It's given me the opportunity to say, what's my part in this? You know, it's given me the opportunity to get out of the dance. And, you know, I feel like if I hadn't been in these meetings for five years, some of us are very, very slow learners. I wouldn't have been able to understand that I'm part of this stance. And, you know, I think, Stephen, you used the word influence. And, you know, I can be a better influence. I can be a good influence in this situation by not taking the bait, by not getting in the dance. And I am so grateful that I've learned through these meetings to trust the process, to trust that she's right where she needs to be and I'm right near where I need to be, which is with all you guys. And, you know, for that, I'm really grateful. So, okay, you say trust the process. So uh, I've always thought that there's, or I hear a lot that, you know, there's parallel processes with the, the qualifier or the addict and the family. Um, they just don't always run parallel. They're parallel. They're just not always parallel at the same time. And um, uh, and I do think that it's so, they are so similar. Recovery sounds sort of weird. I'm in recovery. I'm not sure what I'm in recovery from, but I'm in recovery from dealing with my children properly. And, and so much of what, what, my children learn in their programs or were, were taught, I don't know if they always learned it, um, is very similar to what I've learned in these meetings. And as people said earlier, uh, sometimes you don't learn as quickly as, as uh, you wished with the benefit of hindsight. Um, but they're so, so similar. Um, and, you know, the whole family, it, it's recovery for all. It just doesn't always happen at the same time. Sometimes it doesn't happen ever, unfortunately. Yeah, I like that metaphor of they're they're parallel, but they're not exactly parallel all the time. Uh, Thanks, Jay. Um, I I really, uh, just back to what Kate was talking about, about believing it's it was a moral failing i certainly um thought thought that's what was going on when i my my daughter was first uh diagnosed um and and frankly the anger was very helpful in the beginning because <laughs> it just it just really helped me separate and say i don't want anything to do with this you know person who is I felt she was purposely um making these choices um and of course i know now that you know, it's not a choice. Once you're addicted, you're, you are, you are, your brain has been hijacked. Um, 
but um, I think the the next real big hurdle for me was dealing with the fact that she, after I learned my, you know, five generations of my mother's family, I, I learned more and more about my ex-husband's um, being, a, I knew he was an active addict, which I had learned um, kind of unraveled after we were divorced. But, um, but I felt I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I felt she was so vulnerable because here she's got one parent who's an active addict. She's got three half sisters who are, who are addicts. She's got a stepmom who's an addict. I mean, how, you know, uh, what are her chances? I just, you know, somebody that's, I, I think it was Sam who said, didn't have any hope. I, I really didn't have any hope at the beginning. Um, and so, um, yeah, just just learning that recovery is powerful enough that that even no matter what the odds are, there is a way. There's a way through it and around it. And I'm just so proud of my daughter that she has made her own life. And uh, and and I, you know, I certainly have have learned to do all the self care and and uh, and you know go go on my own parallel <laughs> or unparalleled path also. I really, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bethany. I was just going to say, I I really like this discussion of these parallel processes, even though they may not occur, you know, at the same time, it's patients or, or individuals go to treatment for 28 or 30 days and they can get better and, and be in recovery. And sometimes family members stay stuck in their own patterns and in their own behaviors they didn't necessarily get the luxury to go away for a month and work on themselves, right? So um, sometimes it takes a little bit longer for family members to kind of get up to speed with that recovery process. So I was um, reminded very much by what um, you all have been talking about, about um, the difference between what I thought was helping my son was really just being still stuck in that dance, like you were saying, Kate, um, I thought I was uh, doing everything to um, make sure that he lived a better life. And in fact, I was doing uh, exactly the opposite by protecting him from the consequences, like Jeff was saying. Um, And I think, I think what you said, Bethany, really hit me that it, it just is such a long habit, this idea of parenting, and parenting in a certain way that you've always done. And um, what works for one child doesn't work for another. What works for, you know, my older son who um, doesn't have this uh, issue really wasn't the same. You know, he might see it as help. But the other one, you know, I was just uh, covering up his uh, his his addiction and his bad behavior by by waking him up in the morning and making sure he got to school and. um uh, just being overly being overly concerned with his day to day activities, obsessively so. So I think that that is a huge change for me. Um, and there are no guarantees, but I I would not <laughs> go about this the same way that I did up to this point. That's for sure. The you know when I I heard you just speak, it, one of the things I had to learn was or relearn was everything I needed to do was sort of counterintuitive to what I thought was the correct way or what I believe was the correct way of, of parenting. Jay, before, when you were speaking about trust the process, I, I kept hearing that phrase over and over again. When my son first went into recovery, trust the process, trust the professionals. Um, and, and, and I ultimately I was able to do that. Uh, the hard part for me in sort of trusting the process was that I needed to do work. I thought it was enough for me to trust the process of what the professionals were doing for him. And that would make things better. But part of trusting the process was recognizing that I needed to be in my own recovery. I needed to to learn and change. And to Kate's point, we too went through that period of silence. The first two months was, was deafening. It made me nuts. 
I would keep speaking to my son's primary therapist and saying, can I call him? He would say, when he's ready, he'll call you. And after maybe two and a half, three months, I woke up one day and I, he wasn't the first thing on my mind. And he didn't consume me all day long. And it wasn't what, the, what I thought about when I put my head down at night and I started sleeping better. And that was sort of a turning point for me that I could start to sort of trust the process on myself and recognize that I needed to do some work. And even though that silence lasted for six, if not seven months, you know, one day I got a phone call. And you can call it parallel, but I don't know what he was doing. He didn't know what I was doing, but we sort of came together. Let, let me just say something about the process um, that came to my mind when you said that. Uh, if anyone was so fortunate to go to Ch Karen Chapel on Sundays with Father Bill, may he rest in peace, he used to say some unbelievably things. He said the same thing almost every week, and every week I loved what he said every week I was there. And one thing he said frequently, because the parents or the family members from the family education program, part of the education was going to chapel. And one thing that he said often, he would take a little baseball bat out of his, his uh, put one in his hand. And he said, you family, I'm going to have to hit you guys over the head to learn because you need to get better. We're going to work with your family members and you need to get better. And he said, two sickies don't make a welly and a sickie brings the welly down. And I never forget it. And my guess is after I left that chapel service, I was as sick as I ever had been and didn't really know that I was a sickie. And uh, it does not help. Uh, it does not help or it didn't help me being sick and trying to make my son better. Actually, that's where I was a little bit lucky. I knew I was a sickie, uh, uh, you know, but aside from the facetiousness, you know, I was, you know, did I'm, I'm know? a 12-step guy. Did, I've did had Kate my know? issues with alcohol. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my issues with alcohol. But in terms of that process that uh, uh, and the professionals that Sam brought up, that's been valuable. You know, when our son was a mess, and I'm not fundamentally a fixer, I'm fundamentally a runaway from the problem kind of guy. My wife did get a, uh, a shrink for our son, and luckily, we're both basically rule followers, and she did give us great advice, and we did follow it by, you know, to the letter, uh, uh, and it was really good. You know, if he wasn't ready to get sober, it wouldn't have worked anyhow, uh, you know, so it was really on him, but we really had, had some real good influences on him. You know, she had said he's got to go to AA meetings every day. Uh, and, you know, you can't really follow up on him particularly. But at one point I did hear later from him, you know, at one point she said, gee, what meeting did you go to today? And he made something up and, uh, you know, she was getting out the book that they have of, of where meetings and which one is it. And, and, you know, she didn't completely catch him in his lie, but he realized at that point she may follow me. And he started going to meetings because he was afraid his mother was going to follow him and find out he wasn't going to the meetings. And that's why he went to meetings. Uh, uh, you know, and, and eventually he went away to college and, you know, there was no influence there, but, uh, you know, getting professionals to follow the advice of is really important, uh, uh, and, and following them. Our niece at, uh, at the one rehab was complaining about us not sending, you know, I don't know, food or something. And she said, you guys are the only ones to follow that rule that you're not supposed to send packages. And then she said, no, there is one other set of parents who don't do it. But a lot of parents don't follow those rules that are given. And, you know, some of the rules are going to be stupid. Some of the, you know, you trust the professionals, but they're human. They're going to make mistakes, but they're still going to be better than us overall. You know, using those professionals has made a huge impact on us. As you always say, dear, you know, where has our best thinking gotten us? Well, no, I say, where is, my best <laughs> where, where is my best thinking gotten me? And I usually leave it to the singular. It's in a church basement at six in the morning. You know, um, I, I want to circle back to something uh, that V said, um, and I'm going to sort of paraphrase you a little bit. But what I heard you say was that feeling of failing as a parent. You know, I had this job to do, and I feel like I failed as a parent. And when my son first went into rehab, 
I stuck, I, I, I felt like a neon sign was blinking over my head all the time. I felt like I couldn't walk down the street without anyone looking at me and knowing that I failed my son. I failed my job as a parent and I just wanted to hide away, but I'm also a rule follower and I'm also, they tell me to do something and I do it. And I got myself to meetings and I started listening and learning and I realized I did fail as a parent, but not in the way that I needed to hide, not in the way that I needed to be ashamed, but in the way that I needed to change and I needed to change what I was doing. So it it, it was sort of a perceptual switch for me. I can still say I failed as a parent, but it wasn't this embarrassment. It wasn't this shame. It was the motivation I needed to do to get here and to do the work and to recognize I need to change because if I continue to go along the same path, I'm I'm not going to help myself. I'm not going to help my son. I'm not going to help my family. Um, so I can I can now say that failing as a parent was the impetus that I needed to make those changes. That's one hell of a definition of failure as a parent. I mean, you are doing amazing things and busting your ass to learn really new concepts and really new things. And my view is your son is a really lucky young man to have a mom like you, quite honestly, because thank you. I mean, boy, if that's failure, I'd love to see what success is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I was just going to say, Failure is not showing up for family education programs. It's not being part of family support groups and parent family support groups. That shows a lot of growth. It shows a lot of support and a lot of love, right? And I I wanted to go back to what Jeff said about trusting the process and trusting clinicians and getting resources. Remember, those things only work if we put into practice what's being suggested to us. We can get the resources, we can learn different things, we get smarter, but if we don't put into practice what's being suggested to us by the professionals, by other family members who have been through it, we don't necessarily get healthier. So that's just one thing I wanted to say. Yeah, I I, I think the failure from my vantage point and for me, the failure was not to I didn't fail. My kid, my kid's sick kid. I, I didn't have anything to do with him being, being an addict. Uh, I just didn't, I failed in that. I didn't learn what I needed to do for quite a number of years, which, uh, which really hurt me a lot. And, and all likely hurt, hurt him. I say, you know, the kid goes to make sure he goes to the meetings. <laughs> I dropped them off in a meeting. My guess is he went in the back door, in the front door, out the back door, I picked him up 45 minutes later. He came back in the back door and out the front door. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure he ever went to a meeting, but I dropped him off at every one of them um, when he was that young. But then my failure was failing myself, um, uh, not not learning what I needed to take care of myself. But I just want to go back to the family thing and a little light, a uh, 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 lightness. Uh, I was watching golf this this weekend, the Honda Classic, not too far from where. Stephen is sitting in 80, de- 80 degrees. And uh, there were very few people playing that I had ever heard of. And it was down to the wire with two guys. One of them is a guy named Chris Kirk. He's won four times before yesterday. And a guy named Eric Cole, who's 34 and has never won. In fact, it was his first time in, an LPG- in a PGA event. I sort of remembered that Chris Kirk, I think, was sober. Um, and I'm talking about an extended family now. He, it was hard not to root for Eric Cole. First time, age 34, his parents were professional uh, golfers. My wife's boss, who's in recovery for a long time, played golf with Eric Cole the week before. Um, we were texting with him. It was really hard not to root for what someone would think is the underdog. And I went right to Chris Kirk because mm-hmm. he was a sober man. And I, that's part of my tribe. That's what I've, over the last dozen or more years, it's become a big, big family. I felt bad for Eric. Um, I felt very good for 
for Chris and even more when he said, I'm grateful for my recovery when he was interviewed at the end of the, uh, at the end of the match, which went into an extra poll actually. So here's another little insight. I agree with you. It's an awesome story. Turns out Eric Cole's mom is Laura Baugh, who <laughs> lived a really tough life. She was a professional golfer, four marriages, recovering alcoholic. And so that. I'm sure Eric Cole's life has been, you know, I think yeah. he's part of the community as well, you know, if you, if you ask him. Well, but, I did feel bad for him. I felt bad for him. Yep. Two amazing <laughs> young men. It's great that we can all be in these rooms and from being in these rooms that we all have uh, a piece of that little Dakota ring to hear those words and, and recognize the community. When we were speaking about failure, it was so hard for me to accept failure, just the word itself that I failed. It's so negative. And as I went through these these topics of acceptance well acceptance has the defeatist quality to it surrender you know the classic surrender that somebody surrenders at, at the end of a battle or a war and it wasn't until i was able to hear that surrendering was actually empowering to me accepting made me feel good and i heard a phrase once that nasa never uses the word failure they just use another attempt at success and i try so hard in my daily life to frame things in a way that allow me to empower things and look positively on things. Because when I look at things in that negative failure way that I was a failure, you know what? I was doing the best I had at the moment with what I got. I've learned a lot. I still try and do the best I can today with what I have. I think my education has helped, but I don't look as at surrender and acceptance as failures. I don't look at anything as a failure. I just look at it as, I am I am trying as hard as I can to be successful. Sam, I think those are really, really powerful words, right? And when we can surrender and accept, sure, it has that defeatist quality to it, but it means we're persevering. It means we're moving forward when we can get to that point. And I, I think it was just very, very well said, and it, it just all more speaks to the power of groups like this and continuing to get support for family members and kind of back to our original topic of parental addiction, um, breaking free from some of those behaviors and starting to and starting to move forward. It's a very powerful thing. And I'll just point out there are those that say that going to AA is surrendering and joining the winning side. <laughs> Amen. That's cool. That's cool. I, I you know, I'm thinking about the idea too of of um, changing my behavior was um, the opposite of being stuck, and I was stuck for a really, really, really long time. Um, and I appreciate what you said about perseverance and moving on, um, and and never giving up. You know, there's a new there's a new way of looking at it for me, and that is that um, I, I don't I don't know that it. I would ever give up, um, but I want to move forward. I want to do, you know, the next right thing that I know better now, for sure. Our son once uh, said to us, I said, we've met some wonderful people. We're in this group called the Parent Support Group. And they said, of course, you met wonderful people. You're the people who didn't give up on us kids. And what I think today is that we didn't, give up on ourselves and we didn't give up on each other and for that i'm incredibly grateful and it's always feels so good to be together thank you everybody this is a podcast by parents for parents we are not professionals but parents offering our own experiences with the hope that it might help others we are not experts and our words are our own with views not necessarily shared by care and treatment centers. 
Nothing that we offer in our comments should be considered instructional or diagnostic. Definitely not treatment. And it is not specific to any particular person. Just our general thoughts based upon our own experiences with our family members. Please visit, call, consult with healthcare professionals, your doctor, and other qualified specialists. And do not change what your healthcare professional advises based upon anything you heard a parent say in this podcast. We are not addiction experts. Just parents sharing our personal experiences with other parents.